Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologize for the lower sound quality. Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, local politics and development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to Ahmed Al-Mukaini, independent schooler and GLD collaborating researcher about the recent political changes in Oman. In January 2021, Oman Sultan Haitan declared an end to the former succession system and proclaimed a new crown prince and a new basic law of the state to allow for modernization and transformation of the Gulf nation's economic, political and social structures. Ahmed explains Oman's political system and gives us unique insights into the new basic law and what it means for Oman. This podcast is part of the larger GLD in the MENA project, funded by the Hisham Awai Foundation. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Alan Lust. We hope you enjoy the episode. I'm very, very glad that you're able to join us today and excited about the possibilities of talking about the recent changes in Oman and what they mean for Oman, particularly at the local level. As I think many of our listeners know and and have heard from some of our earlier podcasts that current Sultan Haitham bin Tariq arose or assessed to the throne in January of 2020. And about a year later in, in January of this year, um, there were two major decrees, royal decrees that were put out. The first the, is number 6, 2021, which is the basic law, and then number 7, 2021, which is a law sort of referred to as the Council of Oman law. So I thought we could talk today a little bit about what those laws mean, as well as the effect that they have on the Oman today and, and also into the future. Um, so maybe can you just begin by describing what the content or the major issues and points of those laws is? The basic law is part of our constitution here, and everybody was expecting the basic law to be amended sooner than actually the passage of one year. But it seems that the current sultan took his time to actually make sure that you know everything is in place and think about it so people are ready, and he timed it with the anniversary of his uh, accession. So people would always remember his accession uh, with that uh, change. And, and the, the new basic law had a significant set of uh, changes in addition to actually maintaining or going back to the same older version of the basic law. Just for the benefit of those who are not aware of the old basic law, the old basic law was issued in 1996 and was revised in 2011 after the Arab Spring or the Oman Spring. And the, the changes in the 2011 version were basically more involvement for the elected chamber of the National Oman, so the Council of Oman, so Mohammed Shura. And uh, they actually basically copied what was in the primary law, they copied it and pasted it into the basic law and added the uh, two competences. One competence was the vote of confidence, which was never exercised. And then the other uh, competence was uh, access to the state audit reports, uh, which is a quite confidential report, but it, it, it's very thorough. Uh, so when uh, the new basic law, when his majesty Sultan Haitan issued the new law, he in a way you know, rewound the clock back slightly, because we kind of thought 
you don't need to have all these details in the law. You know, as, as you know, uh, Alan, constitutions vary. Some constitutions are very detailed, others are very vague and very open. But, you know, everything was so vague except Article 58, which was subsection, subsection, subsection. So now the new basic law is in a way more cohesive and uh, more homogenous with each other. So there has been some equal attention paid to the various components of the system in Oman. And uh, it set the major principles and values which the Council of Oman, the bicameral council of Oman to, to actually have and then put everything else in the Council of Oman law, so a separate law. And this was the arrangement in 1997, which was the first time we issued this law, this law to organize the relationship between the various bodies of the state and the, the legislative. 1999, we had minor changes, but then overall, that was the case. So now the basic law has emphasized in the preamble, as well as in an additional section, the value of popular participation. So for example, it included a section on local administration and the involvement of people at the local or the municipal council. Without going into great detail, they introduced uh, new rights, new ways of thinking about them. For example, making a work as a right. The previous version, work was not right. You know, work was something that the government would seek to provide, but now it's a right. It adopted a register, a linguistic register in Arabic that much higher and much more consistent throughout the basic law and also adopted a register that is also consistent with international treaties in terms of rights, responsibilities, obligations, which has been a good sign so far, we think it's a good sign, particularly if you bear in mind that when His Majesty Sultan Haitham came to power, he actually ratified two human rights treaties together at the same time. Maybe human rights would have a better position uh, in the new system. Um, and then the other very remarkable change that um, I've noticed, the minimization or actually the obliteration of the presence of the military influence in the running of the affairs of the state. In the previous version, the Council of Defense was entrusted in inaugurating the new Sultan and was entrusted in a lot of things also and even in the economic principles. So uh, in the economic principles, uh, it said uh, in the previous basic law that the something to do with the usage of and uh, utilization of uh, national resources and national and natural resources, but then it gave a relationship where it said Anything that may uh, interfere with national security or this kind of used a, a register, a linguistic register that's, that security, military has higher precedence than economic stability or economic interest. And uh, that has disappeared now. Now, the, this kind of precedence doesn't exist. It's almost as now the military have a very specific role. They are to protect the country. They are to protect the various institutions. They are not supposed to interfere in the affairs of the state. And that has confirmed what we anticipated earlier, because again, when His Majesty came to power, Van Haytham, one of the first few decrees he made was to put the house in order. All the mess that we had about the various military and army security mismatching each other were separated and everything was put back to where it uh, used to be in the rightful place. So there are a lot of positive signs 
uh, about this. But as you know, the test is in the pudding. So we need to see it in implemented and how this gets translated into really empowering people to actually have a say in what they want. And, you know, particularly the, the, the one significant addition about the oversight over the executive, because now every single senior executive would be actually evaluated annually. So how do we understand this in terms of the, the local level, thinking about what this means for local councils, what it means for change in terms of the relative power of the military and civilian aspects of the yes, state, yes. right? We have you know, a change in terms of the prerogatives of the Council of Oman. We have some attention to sort of thinking about local councils, but how much should we think that they're going to become any significant part of governance in Oman? Well, you know, there are quite few. Maybe we can't actually go through them in detail, but perhaps if I choose one or two of them, and then we can see how things progress. I mean, the concept of local administration as opposed to local government or local autonomy has been made very clear. And so we have local administration where the basic law talked about it. And we have also two significant laws that have given the governance juristic personality. So now every governance is a juristic person, and whatever overlap between the various ministries and the requirements of having local administration has been disentangled, and now these people and these authorities have been moved to the uh, governorate. Of course, what remains now is that for the governorates to actually put plans, identify what needs to be done, and they have uh, about two years or less than two years to actually achieve that. So again, the, the, the language used in the, in the basic law was quite clear, but then the language used in the laws for the uh, governance, uh, which was good to see that demarcated their responsibility from the responsibility of the bicameral council. So now we have a better demarcation, even in the language of the national council, we have a better demarcation between the two, which will make it much easier for the two councils to serve people appropriately. The other element that we've seen, to my surprise or perhaps my dismay, because as you know, I'm working on endowment and beta man, they've now actually mentioned for the first time the concept or the institution of endowment in the basic law. And they are calling for it. They are actually suggesting to people that, you know, we encourage people to go for endowment, which is another form of encouraging civic participation in funding uh, activities or services in the country. And as you know, endowments are regulated differently. Yes, they have their own governance in terms of uh, election and independent bodies, but, but they, they are seen as um, a means of uh, uh, belonging, a means of, uh, I wouldn't say loyalty, and more of a part, you know, patriotism. Uh, and the use of the word Patriotism was also very interesting because it's again for the first time it was used officially in the basic law as opposed to loyalty, which was the main buzzword used for the last 50 years, was more about loyalty. So the terms like muwatana, citizenship, like the terms like wataniya, patriotism have been used. And, and that's also a good sign. And then what happened is the press coverage for the basic law. And whatever His Majesty was saying was more about handing over responsibility back to people. But you know, we need to see how it's going to actually be applied now. I was told yesterday that a new law is in the making for NGOs. The old drafts 
have been scrapped and a new draft is being made. Uh, I've also uh, been told that we are thinking very seriously about having electronic elections because last year we didn't have elections because of COVID-19, which was due for the municipal council. So this year, I think they are seriously considering electronic elections if COVID risks are not uh, lifted at all. So I think we have these two kind of moments of truth. Now, it's interesting because what you're describing in some ways is really institutionalization of the state, right? Sort of moving yes, from personalized yes. loyalty to the Sultan to thinking about, you know, basically citizens, right? And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. citizenship and, and patriotism. When we think about institutionalization, of course, I mean, that it fits very well with understandings that we have about not necessarily only clarity and sort of legibility about the state, but also really sort of thinking about how much you have to give back if you're the state when you also have to tax or when you also have to extract, right? So that this discussion about trying to get people to see themselves as, you know, contributing to endowments and sort of giving back, it makes me wonder, raises the question of how much of this do you think is being driven by the, you know, kind of change in, in leadership of the state and how much of it is being pushed by things like sort of the questions about how much Oman can rely on oil in the future and and just the fiscal, uh, the fiscal challenges that the state faces. I mean, maybe it's hard to disentangle those two, but I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, it's a very good question. Um, I think it's more of the former than the latter, because, you know, the, uh, if we want to take the latter one, it could be easy for the Sultan to take assistance from the Gulf countries and continue the rentier state uh, format and change the way that, you know, things are run. But he will maintain that leash of frontierism on people. But it was evident from day one, you know, though the Sultan is a, is a very quiet person, his, his personality is a, a very muted personality in that sense, but it's very clear that he has all of this sorted out. And what helped him most, if I may say so, the fact that he was heading the Oman 2040, and uh, we, I actually have almost a checklist of all the policy papers and what we have also recommended in the sustainability reports and so forth. And he is doing this one by one. You know, he is following a plan. So there's a vision and plan and clarity. And usually I'm very critical of things, but, you know, that his approach is giving me some confidence that we are heading towards a, a very positive outcome. So going to your question again, you know, when I, I used to give, give a course on the evolution of uh, Oman political identity and culture, and uh, we've moved through, uh, we evolved through patriotism, from patriotism through loyalty to cult worship. And the question was, are we going to go back the same route, i.e. so from cult to loyalty and then patriotism, or are we going to go have a continuum so from cult you go to patriotism and then 20 years down the line we'll go for loyalty and then cult okay so now what sultan hetem has done suggests to me history repeats itself because that's exactly what sultan Qaboos did in the very early 20 you know 1970 to 1980 85 it was more of patriotism from 1986 specifically uh, we we've changed because the belief in patriotism collapsed it was it coincided with the devaluation of the real discovery of major corruption so the only way that the sultan managed to maintain 
how to say, grip of other country is to change the discourse from patriotism to loyalty to the individual of the Sultan in himself. And that loyalty become so, it became so excessive that it turned into a, a cult, right? So I think we are going to have a similar cycle of evolution. Is there a way to stop that cycle, though, if what you describe as the impetus for sort of moving from patriotism to loyalty is one of, you know, kind of revealed corruption and, you know, such a kind of collapse in some of the confidence that people had in the, the state, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, yeah. obviously, early periods are sort of honeymoon periods, often for new leaders, and it's not the only place that we've seen this initial, at least, either institutionalization or expansion of rights and freedoms and, and other things. And then, of course, that can sort of collapse backwards, right? But are there, are there yeah. recommendations that you would have in terms of safeguards or the, or the kinds of mechanisms that could be used to stop that being the trajectory and really have one that really focuses back on citizenship and citizens and then states and rights, which is, the, you know, for many people, I think, a, a better outcome? As you know, Ellen, you cannot stop it. You can't prevent it because at the end of the day, if the monarch is, has full authority, he could use his authority to further entrench his position, you know, and, and uh, there's no mitigation. It has to rely on his willingness to see that future, right? So I have this kind of uh, feeling that he might have this because um, the change he made to the succession, whereas now it's almost a British system. First, uh, you know, the eldest son takes over, and then the eldest of the eldest so it takes that line of um, inheritance. That suggested to me that he is interested in um, institutionalization, because I think institutionalization, checks and balances, for me, is the only means to mitigate such uh, evolution from loyalty to cult worship and so forth. The other reason, um, the other factor is actually making me think about uh, that Sultan Haytham is willing or going that direction. Two things. First, he started or he became a Sultan at a relatively mature age, 65. So he's seen it all, he's done it all. He just wants to put things in order and have someone else really sweat and get his hands dirty. That's what you do at the end of 65. You, know? you just want to put up your feet in a way. So I think that he might have that, you know, uh, inclination in mind. And I think also, again, this is based on uh, early analysis, experience in the Gulf countries and other countries, when, when a new monarch comes in, like in the Ronitia state, if he cannot give handouts, he cannot give further money, the only way he can show that he's as benevolent as the previous sultan is to open up. Even if that open up is short-lived, or, you know, superficial, but he would have to open. And I think that's what we are seeing at this moment in time. He's opening up. And, but I hope that he would soon realize that this opening up is actually benefiting Oman at this stage, is encouraging Omanis to participate in the tax reforms, to actually accept the challenge, particularly with the new ministers, that they work hard with limited resources. So, in short, I think my belief is in checks and balances and that, you know, people would be held accountable, which has been his uh, lingua franca uh, since he took off. So I just wanted one clarification for listeners who, mm. who aren't as aware of this, that Sultan Qaboos, one of the issues was that he didn't have a crown prince. 
there was no established crown prince in the system. And then at the same time, unclear who would, who would succeed him after he passed. So I think that's one of the major differences between the current basic law and, and the previous system. Um, but I'm curious because one of the ways in which you're describing, or much of the way in which you're describing it is, as you said, that you know, it's in the hands of the sultan to decide how much to institutionalize, how much freedom to give, you know, that what can be given can be taken back. If we look at the other side of it and we think about the extent to which Omanis and, or different segments of the Omani uh, polity are pushing for different changes or are interested in, and that there's a sense of demand as well as a sense of supply. Do we mm. see that and where do we see that? I can't see it. Um, it's not visible at all. I think uh, in a way people, because of the economic situation and because the unstable regional situation, at least until now because of Qatar and, you know, Saudi Arabia, etc., and the war in Yemen, people have kept, they have kind of yielded all their concerns and everything to the Sultan, so they are not going to reject anything. I mean, for example, you know, I was expecting or worried about some marches, some sit-ins about the subsidies, either on fuel or on electricity. Nothing happened. People talked about it, you know, I think maybe people are becoming just so civilized or so domesticated. They just talked about it, they wrote about it in Twitter, but that's it, that was the end of it. And then they handed it over back to the Sultan. This is our concern, these are our claims, please uh, help us. So they're trying to put on him this kind of uh, guilty conscious that, you know, you are now the monarch, the head of state, you should act as a father, make sure you are not doing injustice to anybody, right? Now, that's one reason. The second thing uh, I, can, I can also see, Sultan Qabush, when he came to power, he decided that this corporatism uh, marker for Oman is this strict complementarity between the business and the government. Uh, a lot of business people are involved, are respected, are given back, and particularly the, some of the established merchant houses of the old ones. That's what's called Sultan Qabush, and it's the same now with Sultan Haitham. If you look at appointments in some cabinet, if you look at the board of governors of the central bank and his relationship and the people he's been involved, uh, have involved, it suggests that this kind of uh, merger or complementarity between the business community and the political community it seems, seems to be the modus operandi for the current uh, regime. While His Majesty, or well, actually the case of Sayyid Saeed, Sultan Saeed, Qabu's father, he almost shunned away the merchant families and he relied almost solely on tribes. He, himself is to make sure that all the tribal leaders are kept pleased and they are involved even if they're not listened to, but they are involved and so forth. So that's really interesting in terms of thinking about that continuity then between Qabus and Sultan mm -hmm. you know, vis-a-vis -vis the earlier experience with tribes. And I want to come back in a minute to the issue of tribes, but first take a little detour to thinking about, you know, it's 10 years ago that the Arab uprisings took place. And when you're talking about people being relatively quiescent with regards to subsidies, um, it just strikes me as a, it's quite a different picture than you had in 2011. And so maybe if you can you know, describe a little bit about what 2011 looked like. And you had mentioned earlier that the last revision of the basic law was in response mm -hmm. to that. 
and that comparison between then and now, I think it would be, would be helpful for, especially since a lot of people are thinking about what has the Arab uprising brought to the region, and I think rarely think about it with regards to Oman. What happened in Oman was actually started slightly earlier than 2011. It was more of 2010, and uh, it was called by an unknown uh, or anonymous uh, woman who wrote in her blog that it's time for us to tell the Sultan that enough is enough in terms of corruption. So it was mainly built on corruption. And she asked the people to go on a green march, asking the Sultan to remove corrupt ministers and to really uh, clean the government apparatus from uh, corrupted people. And that happened. And then the security was very worried about it. And then when they realized that the Sultan at the time, the late Sultan was pleased with it, then the government staged a kind of its own march. They almost deleted the previous march from history and from records in the media. And they focused entirely on the march that was organized, protected, and they had the police around it by the government to say that this is the response of people. So it was almost drawing a different image altogether. And that's more because the state is so strong, they don't want any narrative to be different from their own narrative in that regard. So forward, go forward, then you go to February 2011, and you know, Arab Spring is all over the place, and people are, you know, seeing uh, signs of hope, okay? That if something happens in Egypt and, you know, in Libya or whatever, then maybe something can happen here. So they started marches and sit-ins, and what actually ignited it uh, was more of uh, the unemployment in the Al-Batina region was very high, and uh, the government department at the time was completely insensitive the way they dealt with the people, and they then called the police. There was uh, some fire shooting, some arms shooting, and uh, one guy died. He was not shot at. It was by... A shot got stray and then somewhere. So that started actually the 2011 social unrest in Oman. 80% of the demands were strictly economic and social. It's about unemployment, about corruption, about Islamic banking, about revamping salaries, revamp, all of these kinds of uh, social economic elements. But then, you know, there was a, a group that actually decided that maybe it's also the time to, to call for political reform. So they asked to revise the constitution and have the basic law more approved by a referendum rather than just being a gift from the monarch, right? Which was, in a way, kind of accepted in principle because there was a proposal earlier since, but was not acted upon. And the sultan, the late sultan, was quite good in the that he responded to almost all the demands. And between February 2011 to, I think, February or March 2012, the ceiling of freedom of expression was quite high. People could express themselves, talk about it, and nobody could touch them because, uh, you know, just tell them, say them, they can say whatever they want to say. The laws were not developed yet, but soon in 2012, the laws were changed. As you know, I think it was the Churchill who said that laws are tools for tyrants. So the laws, were changed to make it much easier to restrict expression, to actually allow the most junior army officer 
to hold and arrest anyone who actually is suspected of uh, saying something or organizing something. And uh, then we had uh, another arrest because of people who got, you know, uh, we actually had sit-in because of people who got arrested uh, as they were covering some news of industrial action because there was an industrial action in the desert and so forth. So, but 2013 was the end of freedom of expression. However, things changed. Things now are not the same as before 2011 because now government officials always remember, oh, things may go out of hand. Yes, we can bring all the army in the world, but are you going to kill your own people? And to what extent, right? Uh, so they remember what happened in 2011 and they try to actually mitigate the risk uh, or the likelihood of it reoccurring. The um, stakeholder engagement, uh, as you would remember, was a key corner of 12040. Now, one of the four priorities identified by the Sultan Haytham or the government during this year and next year is direct contact with people and to inform people prior to any plans or actions to be taken. So that's why that's on the, on the good side. On the, on the negative side, people had seen what happened with the arrests and so forth. So they don't, don't want to go through the same process. And there was a very strong smearing campaign in the social media and in the media or anyone who is who tends to express his or her own opinion would be classified as uh, an ungrateful, loyal person, unpatriotic, uh, or an agent, that's even worse. So even if you had a point to say you are so concerned that your uh, independence or your integrity or your own actually safety might be undermined by uh, somebody actually calling you this or that, and of course, there are people who are not used to expressing themselves because they never had the platform before. So they confuse criticism with slander. So they can actually slander somebody while they're supposed just to criticize what they did. Uh, and, and that resulted in people being very complacent, not willing to actually challenge. They would just say something very calmly and then they just move on. And, and there is one tiny element also, but I don't know whether it's fair of me to say it because. I don't have any judgment, uh, any, any means to judge it appropriately, but um, I've seen glimpses of it during the 2011. People were almost on the, uh, on the fence. They never took a stand. Okay? They would see which side has more likelihood to Is the current, the status quo, the current you know, authoritarians, or the guy, the new guy, okay? Should I put all my eggs here or there, okay? And once they manage to say something, and then they realize, ah, no, this guy, they're still in power, they almost ditch everything they said, and, all of them, and they moved back. And that, of course, was assisted, but as you know, by the, all the Arab media, particularly the Gulf media, telling the Gulf people, look what happened in Yemen, look at what happened in Syria, look, do you want to be like the Syrians? Do you want to be like the Libyans? No, you know, look at it. So, no, 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 I just want to stay and and be very grateful for the end-of-month salary I received. That's it, really, I think. And, of course, that, that works especially well when you get an end-of-month salary, right? So, it, again, yeah. it's tied back to, you know, sort of in some ways what makes it, or at least has made it, more stable in, in Oman than elsewhere. But I, I also really appreciate you describing that because I think one of the misconceptions about the Arab uprisings was that there was nothing that happened in the 
in the Gulf, right? I mean, that's that's the way that people often think about it. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, it ignores what's happened in Bahrain. It ignores, you know, what happened mm-hmm. in Oman and elsewhere. But it is one of the things that started to become a conventional wisdom about how those uprisings unfolded. But the other way of thinking about it, too, is is to think about, you know, when we're thinking about people's exit options. Okay, so I want to be with a winner. So if it looks like the Mm -hmm. the Sultan is is the winner, then that's where I want to be. And but but also that, you know, that the state may affect me more or less. Right. So obviously it affects me if that's where I'm getting my paycheck. But as long as my paycheck is coming, then that's not so bad or my subsidies, et cetera. But um, but, you know, if we're thinking about something like how people, you know, solve disputes or how they manage some of the aspects of daily life, right? So, um, you know, to what extent is that under the kind of the formal state institutions as we're thinking about them? And to what extent are these being taken and and these decisions and and outcomes being affected outside of the state itself? Uh, Majority, I would say, majority of disputes are are within the... uh... The state systems. I mean, within the either the court or arbitration, and both are regulated. And even within the court, we have a, a reconciliation and mediation track, and we have the actual litigation track. And in Oman, as you might know, uh, we follow codes that we use, which are they could be codified Sharia laws, but they also get influenced by the Napoleonic code or the Latin code. And we also have uh, at least two judicial uh, tracks, we have what we call the general adjudication system that actually covers, you know, civil transactions, you know, Sharia, family, uh, labor, and the rest. And then we have the uh, administrative adjudication, which actually uh, handles disputes where the state is party, where the state in sovereign status is party. So that's where you actually go for. And then we have the military judicial system, and that's for disputes that involves only the military among themselves or a military matter. So it does not involve, for example, the Ministry of Defense as a contracting partner. That's a different story. It will will go to the normal court system or the arbitration. It will only uh, handle them if they are, uh, if the dispute is more of a military or security uh, orientated. So the majority of disputes, uh, but we do have in Oman, uh, maybe two or three anomalies. One anomaly is the southern part of Oman, where the tribal system is still quite strong. We have a tribal council there. So, for example, things to do with blood money, blood you know, kind of disputes, uh, they are usually uh, sorted out at a tribal level. And then they might need to go to the court for execution, and they might not need to do that. It's just an understanding. Uh, uh, but that also has a negative dimension in the sense if a dispute, if people ignore the jurisdiction of the tribal council and they say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be modern person, I'm going to go to the court, okay, they run the risk of upsetting the tribes and these tribes, and it happened at least once in my lifetime, that the tribes were having guns outside the court and they would say, we will not accept whatever the court said because this is the jurisdiction of uh, tribal council. There is an understanding in that part that there is this is a jurisdiction of tribal council. Uh, the other uh, anomaly in that regard is the royal court. Anything a dispute involving royal court, dispute involving royal court affairs, which is the royal state department, 
or a dispute involving denaturalization. These are not, they are almost in a vacuum. There is nobody that looks into them. So you have to go to the same party that actually took away your, your citizenship and complain to them. You can go to the royal court and complain to themselves, okay? And that's why it's a bit of an anomaly in that regard. And not very uh, successful, I would assume, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the third uh, anomaly, which is uh, going down in size, is the uh, dispute between tribes over land. Almost all lands now are organized by land deeds, and we have a land register and so forth. But then we are still moving from a situation 50 years ago where there were low land deeds, low land registry, and you could claim, and the criteria for ownership uh, was more based on Sharia rather than based on a piece of paper. And Sharia says, if you have invested in the land and you put a lot of effort and you have made this land productive and nobody came and disputed you doing that, that land becomes yours, right? And, and that's what the source of dispute that until now, but it's going down now because you know the more state actually matures, less and lesser of these things. And, and these are we have committees that look into them, and we have also a filtering uh, committee within the Wali office, the governor's office, or the lower governor's office. So they actually sit among tribal leaders and Sharia scholars. They try to sort it out, then put it on a piece of paper, and then if they can't solve it, it goes to the national committee on that. Once they agree upon something, it gets into the system. It becomes more legible to the system and you have a piece of paper. It's really fascinating because what you've described really from the beginning of our conversation until now is both the strengthening of the state, right? The extent to which really the state is extending its power and, and its its presence, yeah. as well as the institutionalization yeah. of it, right? I mean, and it's uh, in many ways the most real-time expression of that, or at least one of them, where you really can clearly see that process taking place. And, and, it's, and it's fascinating. Yeah, I think, you know, the, because of Oman's history before His Majesty Sultan Qaboos came to power, you know, Sultan Qaboos' rule was the longest peaceful rule we've ever had. And people associated that with the state being the real guardian, being the father, right? Before Sultan Qaboos, yes, we had long dynastic rules, but they, they were not as stable, safe, peaceful, coexisting, and so forth. And he had also very strong enforcement of certain laws, particularly laws to do with respect of boundaries of people and so forth. Uh, so now the, the people are so much used to the idea. I mean, <laughs> my challenge is to try to educate people. No, you give the state legitimacy, not the other way around, okay? But they, they believe now, if the state, they can design it, it's almost kind of nation a la carte, you know? It's a, so it's a quite, for me, it's a quite puzzling how people can't see that as their own right. They want even what to dress, what not to dress, they want the state to have a say in it. Of course, this is changing with time, but you know, you have these, even the younger generation, who have vested interest in the system, like sons of uh, tribal leaders or merchant families or ministers, they would actually go into that and do a mild change. But people who are outside this vested interest system, they want to put on whatever they want. They want to have their hair done, whatever they want. They want to say whatever. That, so we have this friction going on. That Thank you. Um, 
Are there other things that you feel like we haven't talked about or that people should know or keep in mind? Yeah. Thinking yeah. One subject which is quite dear to my heart, which is uh, equality, men and women. One very clear departure and statement made by the basic law, but now it is an obligation upon the state to ensure equal treatment between men and women. Okay. So they have to have equality, right? It's not about equity. They did not use the term equity. They used the word equality, right? And that comes its own challenges, you know, maybe a rejection from people, but then now how to drill that down, how to cascade that down into uh, reviewing laws, regulation, policies. How far can they go? Are they going to touch the very sensitive issues, okay, uh, and so forth? But it's uh, something that, um, as far as I can see, is being very visible in, his, uh, in the Sultan's mind. And it seems also the fact that he is married and he has a good relationship with his wife had, you know, a significant impact. As you know, there's a significant body of literature about uh, women on the bench, as they call them, and judges who have good relationship with their daughters. Uh, they look at legislation differently. They look at cases differently. And it seems to be the case uh, with Sultan Hatton because he's exposed to a different kind of relationship. It's not his mother or his sister they can find all the time. No, it's his daughter, his wife. And they both, Sultan lived as a private citizen for a very long time, okay? He experienced what a private citizen, particularly male or female. And I think that is now showing in uh, his way of, uh, uh, of ensuring quality. And you can you know, can rest assured, I'm trying my best, I'm making sure that people are aware of this particular article in the basic law, and we are going to, inshallah, to include some, some reference to it in the new governance code for public listed companies. So we're trying to push now for public listed companies to have some kind of quota for women uh, on the board. Thank you. Oman is very lucky to have you, of course. I wish both you and, and the country all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity and thank you for your interest. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.